Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm happy to say we have Hans Kundanani on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, Utopia or Auschwitz, Germany's 1968 Generation and the Holocaust. It's pretty common in American political discourse to call someone a fascist, but everyone knows this is just name-calling. The people who get called fascists were never really fascists. It's just a manner of speaking about people you don't like very much. This was not true in post-war West Germany, where people were often called fascists as well. There, however, they actually had been fascists. Students in West German universities were keenly aware of this, and they were keenly aware of a lot of continuities between the Nazi past and the West German present. There was, for example, the strident anti-communism, both under Hitler and then in the Federal Republic. Now, they wondered about what to make of these continuities, and they had some help from the Frankfurt School of Philosophers. And here, I think, is where they became rather confused, because they began to equate the Federal Republic with fascism. And once they did that, as Hans Kundanani shows in his book, the course was clear, because there was only one thing you could do when confronted with fascism, and that is to resist it by all means necessary. Now, of course, West Germany wasn't a fascist state, but they didn't realize this. And for the terrorists, it all ended, as Hans shows, rather badly. They were almost all killed. But for many others in the 1968 generation, things ended a bit better. And in the interesting case of someone like Joschka Fischer, it ended with a seat in power, though, of course, a kind of power in a kind of regime that he had not really imagined This is a fascinating book, and I really enjoyed talking to Hans today, and I think that you'll enjoy the interview. So without further delay, here it is. Hi, Hans. Hi, Marshall. Uh, How are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. We're talking to Hans Kundanani today about his terrific new book, Utopia or Auschwitz, Germany's 1968 Generation and the Holocaust. Uh, I read this book cover to cover, and I can tell you that it's absolutely terrific. You may have seen some films about the people involved uh, I have seen two, actually. The Bader-Meinhof complex is one. And then one I recently saw was about um, Carlos. I think it was just called Carlos, and it was about a fellow named uh, Ilich, uh, Ramirez, I think is his actual name. And it also, uh, we touch base with some of the people that are in Hans's terrific book. So if you have a chance, you might want to look at those films. This is what really happened, <laughs> which is kind of what we expect out of um, serious thinkers like Hans. And so I very, very much recommend that you pick this book up. It's a fascinating window into a really conflicted generation of people. And as I was telling Hans during the pre-interview, I, I, in a weird way, have great sympathy for them, even though they were terrorists. I, I, I know that I'm going to get mail about that, but I don't, I don't know what else to say, but I just really did. By the end of it, I, I didn't know what to think about them. But anyway, Hans, thanks for writing the book. Why don't you begin our discussion by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. 
Well, I'm a I'm a Brit and born bred in London. I'm I'm not German, despite the, the the first name, which sounds German. It's actually Dutch. My mother's Dutch and my father's Indian, which is where the last name comes from. But um, grew up in in Britain. Was always. I guess, kind of interested in, in German history and particularly in the um, in the Nazi past. Studied German and philosophy at university and and then after I left university became a journalist. Spent some time working for some British newspapers in uh, in Germany as well. And and it was actually uh, when I was when I was reporting in uh, Germany at the beginning of the Schroeder government, which was from 1998 onwards, that uh, I became interested in this subject of the, um, of the 1968 generation, because Schroeder and, and other people in that government were, were, were from the 1968 generation. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and that's really where my, um, where my interest in this subject came from. Mm-hmm. So that, that uh, leads us naturally into the discussion of how you came to write this particular book. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, as I say, I was a, was a reporter for The Observer, a British Sunday newspaper, uh, at the beginning of the Schroeder government. And this government was often described as a, as a, as a government of, of 1968ers. And I started doing stories about different members of, of that generation and about different aspects of it. Uh, and the more, I, um, the more I kind of read about it, the more I talked to people, the more, the more interested I became in the subject. And in particular, the sort of complexities, really, uh, that's really what I, I try to bring out in the book, is the kind of paradoxes and the complexities of, of that generation you mentioned already. The sort of, it's a very conflicted generation. And, I mean, essentially, it's the, it's, it's the story of that generation from the 1960s onwards through to the 1990s and then and the, the noughties when um, members of this generation like Gerhard Schroeder and Joschka Fischer are, uh, are in government. Mm-hmm. And so I look at the, the, the sort of influence of some of the issues which they'd been struggling with since the 60s on the foreign policy of the so-called red-green government. Mm-hmm. And yeah, you know, this is the essentially the, the the children of the of the so-called Auschwitz generation, the, mm-hmm. the the children of the generation of Germans that were responsible for the Holocaust. And really, the whole the whole book is about their kind of struggle with with being what they uh, what one member of the, of the generation who who I talked to in the book called it being the children of murderers and mm-hmm. and the and the struggle that kind of results out of out of that. Let's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. a Talk, let's start talking a little bit about them uh, collectively. When were they born? We, we talk about the Auschwitz generation, but... Uh, yeah, well, they're kind of the slightly, I mean, not quite uh, identical with the baby boom generation, but uh, very similar. They're essentially born between, uh, really during World War II and right after World War II. So, you know, in the, essentially in the, in, in the 40s. So, for example, Gerhard Schroeder is born in 1944 and Joschka Fischer is born in 1948. Mm-hmm. And, I, and one of the things I liked about your book is that you uh, make all what, what I would call kind of distinctions that are internal to German culture, which we don't recognize. So you make a distinction between uh, these uh, individuals who were uh, kind of of this generation, but they were a little bit older. And I think you call them the their flak helpers or something. Or what is yes, it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. And yes, uh, I mean. It, it, G- G- German, you can break down Germans born, you know, in, in, in sort of in the twentieth century into these quite neat generations because German history in the twentieth century does break. It has these these ruptures. So you know, nineteen eighteen, nineteen forty five, nineteen eighty nine, and so this does mean that that the experience uh, of people born on either side of these ruptures is is very different. And obviously, the biggest rupture is is, is World War Two. So, you know, on the one hand, you have the uh, generations of Germans who were old enough to serve in the in the Wehrmacht. And and then 
the next kind of sub-generation along almost is the so-called Flakhelfer Generation, which was those Germans who were not quite old enough to be of at an age at which they could actually be conscripted, but they um, were members of the Hitler Youth, and often in the, in, the, in the last few years of the war, they were drafted into man anti-aircraft batteries, which mm. is where this Flakhelfer uh, term uh, comes from. Uh, and then uh, and then the next kind of generation along from that is the the 1968 generation which really has very few memories of of the war itself uh, and essentially sort of grew up after the war so that the experience of the Flakhelfer generation is very different from the the 1968 generation because they they do have these personal memories they were kind of implicated i mean they they weren't really old enough to to to, to be responsible for, for for what happened in the Nazi era um, but nevertheless, they experienced it. So, for example, Günter Grass, uh, the German writer, mm-hmm. famously is, is is a member of that generation. Could you name some other people who were members of that generation? Well, Helmut Kohl, Kohl the German was, Chancellor, yeah. Gerhard Schröder's predecessor as Chancellor, is is basically of that generation too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I see. So let's set the scene after World War II. Germany is, of course, completely destroyed and occupied uh, by the major powers. Uh, I think one of the things that people that don't study this era believe or they have the impression or maybe it's just assumption is, is that it's as if somebody turned on a light switch in Germany in 1945, after May 1945, and all of a sudden the Germans were Democrats again. Uh, or right. for the first time, perhaps. I don't know. But the, the way you described it in your book, it wasn't like this at all. And one of the things that was interesting to me, and I was, I was happy to, to see this highlighted a little bit, is that the initial, uh, I, guess, I guess I would call it the sort of initial regimes that ruled Germany immediately after, or administrations, were strongly anti-communist, and this is associated heavily with uh, with the Nazis themselves, who who said, you know, they were protecting Europe from communism. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that context, because it's the context within which uh, the people of the 1968 generation grew up. So obviously, right after the end of the war, Germany is is divided into these four different zones. You know, in, in the west, the the, the the American, the British, and, and the French sectors, and and, and in the um, the east, the, the Russian and the Soviet sector. And in, in the West, what becomes the Federal Republic in 1948, you essentially have politicians in, in power. Konrad Adenauer becomes the, mm-hmm. the first chancellor who'd, who'd been uh, a member, a mayor of Cologne before the war. But lots of other politicians of, of that era and people who were involved in politics in the immediate post-war era in, in, in the Federal Republic in, in the West, 50s and so on, had been involved in various different ways in public life during the Nazi era. They'd been members of the Nazi party uh, or, or they'd, they'd been active in, 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 in that era in other ways. And so there's a myth that 1945 was, was our zero. But in fact, there were all these kind of biographical continuities between the Nazi era and the Federal Republic. And the most famous example of that is Hans Globke. He'd, he'd been a, an official in the interior ministry during the Third Reich. And it helped to draft. He drafted, in fact, the the commentary, the official commentary for the Nuremberg Laws. He becomes Konrad Adenauer's chief of staff. And there are lots of other examples of, of people like this. So, although you have this democratic system in in, um, in the Federal Republic, there are all these biographical continuities. 
And as then the, the post-war generation, which is born you know, d- during the war and after the end of the war, starts to hit their teenage years in the, in the uh, early 60s, they start to become aware of some of these biographical continuities mm-hmm. and start to question them. They also start to question what their own parents did. And this is one of the things that then leads in, in, uh, in, the, in the late 60s to this big generational clash between the, the, the wartime generation and the post-war generation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I wanted to talk to you uh, just for a second hear what you have to say about a program which every American learns about when studying this period, and that is the denazification program. Yeah. And one of the things that you point out in the book, at least implying the book, is that there's only so far it could go. Yes. I mean, essentially, it was sort of truncated. It was, you know, initially pursued quite thoroughly. And obviously, the Nuremberg Tribunal is, is, is the most famous attempt to, um, to put those responsible for, for the crimes of the Nazi era on trial. But essentially, what happened was, as the Cold War sort of kicked in, and particularly after the Federal Republic was created in 1948, lots of former Nazis were rehabilitated in the judiciary, in politics, in academia. And so, and, and, and lots of prosecutions essentially were, were dropped against a lot, lot, a lot of these people. So by the late 50s, you had a situation where there were many former Nazis who, who were um, in positions of, of power and responsibility in the Federal Republic. And, and young people in Germany experience this very directly. For example, it, you know, they're, they're, they're teachers. And then subsequently, when they're at university, their university lecturers, you know, often were, 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 were former Nazis. Uh, since you mentioned universities, one of the things you point out in the book, and I quite like this as well, is that uh, this is a very small number of people, uh, small in the relative sense, of course, and they're, uh, they are uh, strongly localized a, institutionally in universities, and B, in just a few cities, Frankfurt and uh, West Germany or, or West yeah. uh, Berlin are two of them. Maybe you could talk a little bit about what it was like to go to university in the early 60s and what the, what the scene was there. What did they? I've been to German universities, and I still don't understand them. Um, so <laughs> I don't know what they do there. But yeah. <laughs> they produce well, really should, good scholars, I but I, I don't know. I've never seen anybody studying. So it, what, what was it like to be at university then? Well, I should say, I mean, I wasn't around then. So, so I, I, all, everything I know about that period is kind of secondhand. I was born in 1972. So from what I've been, from what I've been told and, and what I've read before 1968 or before the 1960s, German universities were sort of very hierarchical and, and authoritarian. And, uh, you know, in, in a sense, West German society as a whole was still in, was still very authoritarian at that time. And, 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 and one of the things that the uh, 1968 generation did was, was help to, to make West Germany more, more liberal and, and in particular to make universities more liberal through the, the protest movement. But I, I, you're right that, yeah, the West German university system was and, and is very different still from the American or the British um, yeah, no, university system. It really is. So well, an- another thing that I really, you can tell I liked a lot about your book, another thing I really liked about your book is that you uh, make it not only the story of uh, a kind of set of ideas and movement, but also of individuals, because it was a res- relatively small group of people yeah. doing this, and, and so you have these small uh, uh, Lebenslaufen, or I don't know what the word in German is, these sort of stories of these individuals. Yeah, right. I think the most, yeah. uh, the most fascinating one uh, to me, uh, and I heard a little bit about him was, um, uh, well, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting his name. His name's Rudy. Uh, Rudy Ditchka. Yeah, Ditchka. Yeah, maybe you could tell us a little bit about him because much of the story revolves around him. He seems to have, he's a tremendously yeah. sympathetic person, except for the bomb throwing part. But anyway, <laughs> go, go, right. Yeah, talk a little bit about him if you would. Yeah, no, he's a, he's the sort of central figure in the in the in the West German student movement, which kind of gets going in the in the mid '60s and then and then reaches its climax in 1968, and then you know, subsequently after that, the, the 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 movement kind of breaks up into various different factions 
some of which then turned to terrorism. Um, and, and Dutschka is the kind of pivotal figure, really, in, in this um, in this movement. And he's the sort of the, the icon, really, of, of, the, of the West German New Left. But what's interesting, and this is one of the things I try to bring out in the book, is although he, he becomes this figurehead of the, of the student movement and of the New Left more generally, he's actually a very atypical figure within it. Uh, most importantly, he doesn't grow up in West Germany, Ardenauer's West Germany of the 1950s. He grows up in East Germany, actually. He's born Brandenburg. And he and he comes to to West Berlin actually to study in the in, in the nineteen sixties just before the, the the Berlin Wall um, goes up and he's then uh, in August nineteen sixty one when when the wall goes up he's cut off from his from his family and, and stays in the West and in many ways that's the beginning of 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 his kind of of his his activism is. Uh, is at that moment. And, and because of that, he has very different concerns from his comrades who grew up in the West. And in particular, one of the consequences is that he cares deeply about the division of Germany for obvious biographical reasons. As I say, he's, he's cut off from his, from his family, from his mother, who he's very close to. So for him, German reunification is actually part of the revolution. Mm-hmm. But to complicate things even more, he isn't always entirely open about this, precisely because at, at, the, at that time, German nationalism was was a taboo on the West German um, New Left. So, so he writes, for example, about about this subject using pseudonyms. And there's sort of subsequently been sort of you know lots of debate in Germany about Dutschka's nationalism and whether he really was a, a German nationalist. I, I argue that, that that he was, and this was a, a you know sort of an important part of of his politics. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, uh, I, I guess. As part of setting the scene, we should also talk a little bit about the, about the political parties with which these people might have been involved had they been legal, I guess right. I would say. Right. So the, the KPD, the, the old German Communist Party, was outlawed. Is that correct? Right, right. In, in 1956. So, and again, this is obviously all, this whole story really happens in the context of, of the Cold War. And you mentioned earlier on the sort of, the, 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 the sort of anti-communism that was very pervasive in, in West Germany. You know, again, for, for, for obvious reasons, you know, West Germany is literally on the front line mm-hmm. of, the, of the Cold War. And this anti-communism is even more um, pervasive and, and sort of slightly hysterical, I think you could describe it as, in, in West Berlin, which is this kind of island, this kind of democratic capitalist island deep uh, in, West, in, in East Germany. So you have, for example, a, a virulently anti-communist press there, and, and this entire student movement um, emerges against that background, and, and they see in the, in the, um, the anti-communism of, of the establishment and of the, of the press and, and of, the, of the right uh, at that time, uh, as you mentioned earlier, a sort of continuity between the, um, between the Nazi era and the, and, the, and the Federal Republic. But so the, the, the three main parties at, at that time in, in the West German political system are the, the Christian Democrats, the, the Social Democrats, and, and the Free Democrats, essentially liberals. And the, the Communist Party, as you say, had been banned. And the consequence of that essentially is that there isn't any opposition, a p- parliamentary opposition to the left of the Social Democrats. And out of that situation then emerges what becomes known as the extra parliamentary opposition, mm-hmm. which becomes almost a sort of pseudonym for the, for the, the student movement. The opposition then to, to the Social Democrats and, and the Christian Democrats becomes you know, on, on the streets rather than in, in Parliament. The, the Christian Democrats and, and the Social Democrats form um, a grand coalition in 1966. I mean, this is, a, you know, again, a sort of key turning point 
because it, because it means that uh, apart from the, the Free Democrats, which is a, a very small party at that time, you know, you have the two biggest parties in a, in a coalition with each other. And and so, as I say, opposition essentially moves moves onto the streets and, and this galvanizes the, the, the student movement. Mm-hmm. Another thing that I found very interesting about the book was the way in which you weave in, I guess what I would call the intellectual life of these people and how strongly they were influenced by by the what we call in the United States the Frankfurt School. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and really they were in a kind of constant dialogue with, with yeah. these people. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the Frankfurt School and, and how they affected the people, the sixty-eighters. Yeah, they, as you, yes, as you say, they have a they have a sort of a, a complicated relationship with with the Frankfurt School. They're, they're they're very much influenced by Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer and Herbert Marcuse, but in quite complicated ways. And and then, although they're influenced by them, they sort of reject them at at a certain point in in the development of the student movement too. So the Marcuse is is a, is an important figure for the for the new left everywhere, really. Like even mm-hmm. in. US. In fact, you know, at the time he's he's in um, he's in the US. He's in California. Most of these members of the Frankfurt School had left Germany during the Nazi era, and and uh, and, the, and the Frankfurt School, the, the the Institute for Social Research, as it had been as it was called, had actually moved to to the US during the war. And Marcuse stays behind and actually goes and works for the State Department after the end of the war. But Adorno and Horkheimer return to Frankfurt, and so and and the. Uh, the student movement is they, they see um, Adorno and Horkheimer as their inspiration, and they and, and nearly all of their ideas come from the Frankfurt School. In particular, their definition of themselves as an anti-authoritarian movement comes from Adorno and Horkheimer's work on authoritarianism. And then, uh, and and yet, what over the next few years, from the sort of mid sixties onwards. They, they gradually start to, to reject Dorno and Horkheimer as not really being radical enough, and in particular not, not, not being practical enough, essentially, not being prepared to actually take action. In Berlin, I mean, this is very much in, in, in Frankfurt, because Dorno and Horkheimer are actually there, they, um, they have a huge influence on the, the Frankfurt branch of the SDS, which is the main student organized, left-wing student organization. Meanwhile, in Berlin, Marcuse plays a much more important role. And in, in particular, he's a, he's a huge influence on, on Rudy Dutschka, who's, who's in West Berlin. I, I, you know, one of, the, one of the things that's very curious about these people is if you compare them to, I, I think, if you compare them to their counterparts in the United States, that is, people in the 1960s, uh, they're much more what they call theoretically oriented. They're constantly right. having reference to these texts. You find them right. reading the one—I don't know—the one-dimensional man or something, yeah. and they really yeah. twist themselves into knots trying to yeah. to write themselves w- with this theory. Uh, yeah. Where does this impulse come from? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, it's it's absolutely right that they they, I mean, they really take this all very very seriously. You know, as, as, I, as I mentioned, you know, Marcuse is, is an influence on, on the protest movement elsewhere in the States and, and so on. And obviously you have a, you know, you have a similar protest movement in, in, in France that, that culminates in, in May 1968 in Paris. But as far as I can tell, nowhere, none of these other protest movements, none of them were as, were as intellectual as the, um, as, as the West German student movement was. And, and, and none of them thought so seriously about political theory as, as, as the Germans did. And 
as you say, they, 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 they tie themselves in theoretical knots. And this then leads eventually to justification of, of, of terrorism in, in, in the 70s as resistance against the, against the so-called Auschwitz generation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I, it's absolutely fascinating to see them try to, to try to square what they see on the street with what they find in these books, because it's, ve- it's a very hard thing to do, and they don't really succeed in doing it, because I, I don't think it could have been done. Um, right. so just, so we'll talk about some of the ins- – they, they, really, they really create a kind of a thought world within which they exist that I, I don't think really had much connection with reality. That's editorializing right. on my part. But, right. Uh, no, that's it, my, that, was, that was my impression too, yeah. Yeah. So things really get kicked off here uh, after a, a fellow named uh, – and his name is interesting in Germany. His name's Onasorg, isn't it? Yeah. He yeah. gets shot, yeah. Yeah. So uh, Mr. Onasorg gets shot. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how – Things sort of spin out after that. On in, in June 1967, the Shah of Persia comes on a state visit to West Germany, and the the West German student movement had, I mean, should probably sort of take a step back and and, and explain that its 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 politics had been de- developing in 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 the mid 60s around solidarity with national liberation movements in the Third World and critique essentially of American imperialism. And the Shah of Iran was seen as being, you know, an American client regime. Uh, and so the student movement mounted a, demonstra- a series of demonstrations in, uh, to, against his visit in, in June 1967. During the course of, of a demonstration on June the 2nd, as the Shah of Iran was in the uh, Deutsche Oper, the Opera House in West Berlin, a student named Bennett Ornazorg was shot by uh, a, a West Berlin policeman. It's recently emerged that, um, in fact, he was working for the Stasi. That wasn't known at the time, which is a sort of a further irony to, to this story. But this this moment when when he gets um, when when he gets shot becomes a, a sort of a catalyst, really, for the for the student movement to um, to, to radicalise, and that's really the beginning of the of the sort of confrontation between the West German student movement and and the state. Mm-hmm. So uh, th- let's return just for a second. To their again, their thought world, and and tell me if if I'm wrong about this. They, they believe, and this is largely as a result of having read Adorno and these fellows, that um, that the enemy is international imperialism, right? And it's led by the United States, and and there's some uh, there's some sort of uh, similarity between the United States and uh, Nazism somehow. They seem yeah. to conflate these things. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so. That their target is, is, is imperialism, and imperialism, as we all know, because we've read Lenin, is, is driven by capitalism, and the biggest capitalist country is, uh, is, is the United States. What do they think about the Soviet Union? There are, there are different factions within the, the West German student movement that have slightly different views of, of the Soviet Union. And again, this is where the, the fact that Dutschka grows up in East Germany makes a difference, because in fact, he's slightly more critical of the Soviet Union and of communism in general than some of his comrades who'd grown up in West Germany were. Some of them tended to romanticise the Soviet Union uh, and, you know, weren't, weren't as critical of, of, of it as they were of the US. I think their, their position can best be described as anti-anti-communism <laughs> in, in, in the sense that, you know, as, as we've already discussed a little earlier on, they, they saw anti-communism as, 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 a, as a manifestation of, of these continuities between the Nazi era and post-war federal republic. Uh, but the, but they were sort of they, they were di- the different factions had different views about communism itself. Some of them, again, influenced very much by Adorno and Horkheimer, also rejected 
the Soviet Union as a model. Mm-hmm. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be correct to say that that they were simply communists. Mm-hmm. They were more preoccupied with the problem of anti-communism, as it were, than the problem of communism. I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's it's very interesting because this leads them to again one of the other things that they conclude is that somehow uh, Israel, and this puts yeah. them in a very odd position. Yeah. Israel is somehow a client state of the United States, and that yeah. Zionism is is really imperialism. Now, again, yeah. that that may or may not be true. I don't know, but they yeah. they don't question this anymore. They really think this is true, and, and this yeah. puts them in a very odd situation. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, this is one of the, this is one of the absolutely fascinating things I think about this story is that, as I mentioned, on the the, the shooting of Ben Onozorg happens on the second of June, nineteen sixty seven, and three days later. The 5th of June, the Six-Day War starts. And this conjuncture, these two things, that the West German student movement radicalises precisely at the moment when the Six-Day War, which you know transforms the, uh, the Middle East in many ways, has all kinds of very complex consequences. Mm-hmm. Up to the time of the Six-Day War, the West German New Left had been pro-Israel. The German term for this is links-Zionistisch, left-wing Zionist. Younger people in in West Germany had tended to be more pro-Israel than older people, and Israel essentially was seen by by the by the, the new left up to this point as being a country of, of Holocaust survivors, as a, as a refuge for, for Holocaust survivors. And what then happens in a very very short space of time is that that perception of the Middle East is turned on its head. I mentioned earlier that the West German student movement had had was particularly interested in national liberation movements in the third world, like the Viet Cong, for example. And what happens is they start to see the Middle East and Israel in this theoretical, the same theoretical framework, where the PLO is one of these uh, national liberation movements fighting against imperialism in the third world. And and so Israel then is seen as being bridgehead of American imperialism in the Middle East. And so in the same way that the United States and, and, West, German, and West Germany, Federal Republic, are associated with, with fascism, so Israel is also associated with fascism. And this is, I think, a very good example of what you mentioned a minute ago, these kind of theoretical knots that they tie themselves in. Because very quickly after the Six-Day War, at least some people within the, the West German New Left start to see Israel as, as, a, as a Nazi state. They equate it with, 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 with Nazism. And that then in turn justifies resistance against Nazism, sort of ex post facto resistance against Nazism. And, and, and I would argue that that then leads to, for example, terrorist attacks, not just against Israelis, but against Jews l- later on, that, that the people who carry them out are able still to perceive as being anti-fascist resistance. Yeah, I, I find this, all this kind of amazing because one of the things that I'm trying to write in my own head is that these people were extraordinarily well-educated and were intellectuals, had read very deeply, but the categories within which they think are the opposite of subtle. So that so that anybody who uh, f- yeah. fights fights a war over territory is instantly an imperialist or a Nazi, regardless yeah. of who they are. Uh, yeah. in, in, and that just it, it, again, it's it's um it's sort of like an intellectual, uh, it, it's really um brute force. I don't yeah. I don't know how you can put anybody who knows the history of these things and they did. I don't know how you could put these things in the same category, but they yeah. did. So uh, yeah. th- this, yeah. how do they get to the point they're actually um, committing terrorist acts? Because they hadn't heretofore. I mean, it's a very, as you say, it's a, it's a very black and white worldview, and the transition to to terrorism is. I mean, it's it's. It, I, I think it's very difficult to kind of find a moment where this transition 
from legitimate protest to terrorism happens. It, it's a, it's a very gradual process, and that's I think precisely what makes it what's what makes it so so fascinating. I talked earlier about Rudy Dutschka. And there's been a lot of discussion about about his role in this transition from from protest to to, to terrorism. The the concept of resistance it seems to me plays plays a key role because I, I think the the error was actually came much earlier was to define West Germany as a fascist state. Mm-hmm. The moment you do that, then violence does seem to be to to be legitimate in the same way as as during during the Nazi era acts of violent resistance would be, you know, would be seen as, as being legitimate. If you understand the post-war Federal Republic not as a democratic state, but as, as a fascist state, which is increasingly how the West German student movement saw the Federal Republic in, in the late 60s, then really all these discussions about what they call the Die Gewaltfrage in German, the question of violence, become really questions of sort of tactics. Mm-hmm. Is, is violence against property or against people, is, is it going to actually help you overthrow the West German state or not? They, they, they cease then to be, to be moral questions because, because you've defined the, um, the state as, as, as a fascist state. So one of the things that happens that actually I think leads them, if I recall correctly, just to return to the narrative, is that Dutschke himself gets shot. He, right. He, I, yes. Yeah. I, 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 yes. I mean, so, so in, in, in April 1968, Rudy Dutschke is shot. Um, he doesn't die. He's shot three times in the head by, by uh, a sort of deranged German nationalist. So this is a, a further irony given Dutschke's own German nationalism. And for a few days, it's unclear whether he's going to survive. There's massive protests in, in, in West Berlin. And then shortly after, he, do, he does recover. He has a, a, a very long, difficult convalescence, but leaves Germany fairly soon afterwards. And, and and leaves a, a massive void, really, in, in, in the West German student movement. And what's interesting is that um, precisely because he leaves, this subsequent emergence of terrorism, it's not entirely clear what role he, he, he played in that. He had the, the process, I, I think, I mean, I would argue, was, 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 was already starting to happen, uh, sort of increasing radicalization before he'd been shot. So, for example, he had... He'd, he'd been planning attacks on U.S. military installations, mm-hmm. and he'd received explosives. I mean, there's a, there's a great story about about how he received these explosives from Gian Giacomo Feltrinelli, who is an Italian radical Italian publisher. He transported these explosives to a to a safe house in his baby's pram with, oh, his, with his one-year-old son sleeping on top of these yeah. explosives absolutely extraordinary and and so it was clear you know even before he was shot that Dutschka's thinking was moving in, in this direction how far he would have gone is obviously not clear and it's it's now purely speculation because because um, he then left Germany and and by the time he came back in the late 70s things had moved on he certainly wasn't a pacifist as I think some people particularly in the Green Party like to think of him as being then at the point that they uh, embark on they're kind of terror campaign, uh, they break up into factions. And again, right. maybe you could help us disentangle them. Yeah. One yeah. of them was the, the Bader-Meinhof uh, group, and then another was the uh, the Red Army faction. And then there was a third one, I think, called the Revolutionary Cells. Is that right? Well, yeah, and there were more. I mean, I should probably... Pref- <laughs> I'm sorry, I did. I, sh- I, sh- I should probably preface this by by sort of stressing that and it's it, it you know it's not the case that the entire West German student movement turned to terrorism. I mean, mm-hmm. Essentially, what happened was after Rudy Dutschka had been shot over the next two years, from from 1968 to about to, to the beginning of 1970, the student movement started to fall apart. It became increasingly clear that their strategies weren't working, and 
and uh, different groupings kind of emerged within them. And essentially, there were three different directions in which, in which as the student movement broke up, three different directions in which members of, of, of the movement went. The first was was towards the political centre, I suppose. Lots of, of young people joined the Social Democrat Party. They, they moved to the centre-left. Um, they saw, in, particularly in the figure of Willy Brandt, the possibility of that, that reform through you know through the democratic process could actually achieve some of their some of their aspirations and and Willy, Willy Brandt become he's elected in 1969 partly through the votes of, of of these young people who sympathize with the student movement it has to be said though that not many of the leaders of the west german student movement joined the social democrats they saw the social democrats as as the enemy the second direction which members of the student movement went was into the so-called K-groups, which were these kind of essentially communist splinter groups, which rejected lots of the ideas of the student movement and, and returned really to sort of old left rather than new left ideas um, about the proletariat. The student movement had, had believed, again, this was the influence of Marcuse, that, that an avant-garde of, of intellectuals like students could actually be the revolutionary subject, could actually lead the revolution. Uh, and that seemed, after 1968, to have failed. And so lots of, lots of the people who'd been involved in the movement turned back to the proletariat as the only real sort of revolutionary subject and joined these, these tiny splinter groups that fought with each other about tiny points of Marxist ideology, essentially. And then the, the third group was were, were the terrorists, and there, there was the the, the Bader Meinhof group, which is actually a, a misnomer because because it was it should really have been called the, the Bader Enslin group, yes. Gudrun Enslin being really the key figure along with Andreas Bader, but um, Ulrike Meinhof, who had been a, a prominent left wing journalist, was a, a much more well known figure, and so tended to be associated with her. And actually, the the Red Army faction is the same thing, essentially, as the Bader-Meinhof group. Two different names for the same thing. The, the Red Army faction was what they called themselves, and the, the, the Bader-Meinhof group or the Bader-Meinhof gang was what the media tended to call them. And then, as you say, there were other groups as well, which were smaller, but, but actually, you know, sometimes even more radical. The Revolutionary Cells, as you mentioned, you mentioned at the, at the very beginning, the, the Carlos movie. Yeah. Some of the people involved in the Revolutionary Cells also worked mm-hmm. closely with Carlos, Carlos the Jackal. And then there was a third group, which you didn't mention, called the 2nd of, Ju- of June oh, yeah. movement. And that was named precisely after the killing of Ben Onazor in, in 1967. And that illustrates the way that these groups did grow directly out of the, the, the student movement. They saw themselves in many ways as being a continuation of the, the student movement's ideas. But, but they, you know, it's, it's interesting in a way because they, they get a little bit mixed up with some very rough characters from the Middle East who re- right. actually are professional right. uh, revolutionaries. And, and they don't like that very much. Maybe you could talk a little bit about their Palestinian, I, I want to say right. adventure, but that's not very nice. Well, again, I mean, this sort of grows out of the, the interpretation uh, of the Middle East that had, that had merged after the Six Day War, and which was shared widely in, in the West German student movement. It was natural, I think, in a sense, that they would seek to work with, with Palestinian groups. This culminates in the Entebbe hijacking in 1976, when two Palestinian terrorists and two West German terrorists from the, uh, the revolutionary cells hijacked an Air France jet and, and flew it to Entebbe in Uganda and then proceeded to separate out the Jewish passengers from the non-Jewish passengers. Mm-hmm. Not the Israeli passengers from the, non- from the non-Israeli passengers because, for example, there were also French Jews on the, um, on the flight too and they released the non-Jewish passengers and, and kept the, the Jewish passengers as hostages. And it was the two German terrorists, in fact, who, who, did, this, who did this separation. So, in other words, 
clearly an anti-Semitic, not just an anti-Israeli, but an anti-Semitic terrorist attack. For some members of the 1968 generation, like Yoshka Fischer, who, who's, who's, who's a key figure in the book, this was a kind of a, a wake-up call when they realised that actually it, this movement that had started as a protest against the so-called Auschwitz generation was um, perhaps not quite as dissimilar from its parents' generation as it had liked to think. So uh, is it fair to say that in the course of the early 70s that all of these terrorist groups were crushed? They, well, yes, I mean, I guess so. I mean, the Baden-Meinhof group, I mean, this this culmination of, of the of, of this left-wing terrorism of the 1970s is in 1977, the so-called Deutsche Herbst, or German Autumn of 1977. There's a, a sort of bloodbath, essentially, uh, uh, where a, another flight, a, Luft, a Lufthansa flight this time, is hijacked and flown to Mogadishu in Somalia. It's eventually stormed by, by Gierski 9, which is a German anti-terror unit that had been set up after the 1972 Munich Olympics. And then immediately after that happens, um, Gudrun Enslin and Andreas Bader, who, as I said, were the two key figures in, in the, um, the Red Army faction, kill themselves in uh, Stammheim prison in Stuttgart. And that's really the spell, really, that um, the Red Army faction had, had, uh, had cast over the West German New Left. However, the Baden-Meinhof gang, is, or the, rather the Red Army faction, does continue to exist until 1998. Ironically, the year that, that the Red-Green government formed of members of the 68 generation comes to power. From 1977 through to, to 1988, uh, 1998, sorry, they'd, uh, they carried out a series of other increasingly senseless terrorist attacks that really had no kind of political meaning at all. But they no longer really exercised any huge influence over the broader left and that's really what interested me in the book is you know the story of of west german terrorism is is quite well known even beyond germany through the movies as as you've mentioned what i wanted to do in the book was try to show the broader context and in particular the way that the terrorists were both influenced by the west german student movement and grew out of the west german student movement but then conversely also the way that really for that 10 years from 1967 to 1977, they also set the agenda for the West German New Left, the broader West German New Left, and, you know, continued to really have the sympathy of big parts of the West German New Left, even where they disagreed with with the tactics of, of terrorists like the Red Army Fraction. They considered themselves often to be part of the same struggle and had the same objectives, and their differences with them were, as I say, differences of tactics rather than anything else. Mm-hmm, I see. So let, let's actually move the, the story forward then, and I think we can do it effectively through the story of Yoshka Fischer himself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How, eventually, he ends up as a, a foreign minister, doesn't he? Right. Yeah. Well, yeah how, do, how the heck does that happen? Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> an extraordinary. Um, it's an extraordinary political journey. I mean, essentially, tell a, a, a very long story um, very quickly. The uh, the ideas of the of, of the nineteen sixty eight generation kind of move into the political mainstream in Germany. And this happens partly through the Social Democrats. I mentioned earlier that some young people who'd sympathised with the student movement in the 60s joined the, the Social Democrats and their ideas start to make their way into, into the political mainstream that way. And then in parallel almost to that, you have the emergence of the Green Party in the, in the second half of the 1970s. And Rudi Dutschka returns after having been away from Germany for years, he, he starts to get involved in the embryonic green movement, environmental movement that becomes the Green Party in the late 70s. And he'd actually just moved back to Germany in 1979 when he finally dies. He has a, an epileptic seizure and, and drowns in his bath on Christmas Eve 1979. And again, it's a tragic end to his life. But he'd committed himself to the Green Party, which he 
saw as a kind of a second extra parliamentary opposition. Then afterwards, in, in the early 80s, other members of the 1968 generation, above all Joschka Fischer, join the Green Party, even though actually they're not particularly interested in environmental issues, but they see it as a vehicle through which they can actually kind of resume their political activism, this time through democratic means. So Fischer becomes elected as a as a member of the Bundestag in 1983 and then gradually works his, you know, t- turns out to be incredibly effective politician and gradually works his, um, works his way up. And, and in 1998, you finally have the first red-green coalition, in other words, a coalition of social democrats and greens that comes to power and Gerhard Schroeder becomes the chancellor and Joschka Fischer becomes, becomes the foreign minister. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I try to do then in, in, in the sort of last third of, of the book is is to look at the influence of, of 1968 and the ideas of 1968, and in particular this question of how the 1968 generation deals with the Nazi past and the influence of the Nazi past, the influence of that on the foreign policy of, of the red-green government. The, in particular, the, the, the red-green government faces these three major foreign policy crises in Kosovo, uh, Afghanistan, and then finally Iraq. Mm-hmm. And what um, do they do? Why don't you tell us a little about well, that? Well, and, it, and it, it, it seems to me um, what's so fascinating about it is that these two figures, Schroeder and Fischer, embody two currents within the 1968 generation and within the student movement. And so although they agree uh, with each other on, in terms of policy on these three different crises... They approach them in very different ways and they're motivated. They have very different motivations. And they have two very different ideas of German identity after Auschwitz and and consequently of German foreign policy. So the question essentially in in all three cases, it, it revolves around the involvement of Germany in military intervention. In the case of the Kosovo War in 1999, the Red Green government decides to send German troops into combat for the first time since World War II and does so mainly as a result of, of, of Fischer's passionate defence of, of that course of action. But, it, but the justification that he uses is very much to do with the parallels that he draws between uh, ethnic cleansing in the Balkans and Holocaust itself. Mm-hmm. Then similarly, after 9-11, Germany sends troops, first of all, as, as part of Operation Enduring Freedom and subsequently ISAF. And then, obviously, during the, uh, in, the, in, the, in the run-up to the Iraq war, Germany decides to oppose the war and, and doesn't, send the, doesn't send troops in that case. And I try to sort of examine the, the rhetoric of both Fischer and, and, and Schroeder. And it seems to me that Schroeder very much, particularly in the case of the Iraq war, uh, uses a kind of a nationalist rhetoric that picks up um, Rudi Dutschka's German nationalism in the 1960s. That's one current. And the other current is uh, very much the, 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 the current embodied by Joschka Fischer, which is very much focused on the Nazi past and putting contrition for Auschwitz at the centre of German foreign policy and the centre of German identity, whereas Schroeder essentially, it seems to me, wants to draw a line under the Nazi past and, and say Germany is a, is a normal country, essentially. So I guess as a, as a final question, have, have these 68ers been completely mainstreamed now? Because it doesn't seem to me that the positions that they take when they're in power are any different than, or they're slightly different, I suppose, than a Christian Democrat might or some in the SPD. Are they, have they become part of the establishment? I mean, has, has all the Adorno and Horkheimer, that business gone well, now? Well, I, th- I mean, that's, that's a, an accusation that's often leveled at them. I, I think actually that, that, and this is really the, the point that I try to, the argument that I try to make in the book is that, is that 1968 does influence them in power. 
it just does so in slightly more subtle ways. It doesn't do so in obvious ways, but it seems to me that both Schroeder and Fisher are influenced, particularly in, in the foreign policy of the red-green governments, by these different ways in which they choose to engage with the Nazi past. And that, to me, seems actually to be one of the central um, elements of, of the 1968 generation in Germany that makes it different from con- contemporaneous protest movements in Britain or in, mm. in, um, in the US. So I would argue that, you know, clearly they, their, their ideas had evolved over time. And, but, but, but nevertheless, there was an influence of, of, of Adorno, actually. I mean, Adorno is a very good example. You know, Adorno does, I think, have, have you know, quite a visible influence on, on Joschka Fischer's vision of German foreign policy. So Adorno famously talks about how, in negative dialectics, talks about how there's a, that the Holocaust, as Auschwitz, has imposed a new categorical imperative on, on man, to, on humanity, to... Um, to prevent a repetition of, of Auschwitz. And essentially what Joschka Fischer tries to do when he's in, 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 uh, in power is to base German foreign policy on this categorical imperative. So it does seem to me that he, you know, he, makes, he tries to make this German, German raison d'etat. Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, there, is a, there is a very strong influence, actually, of, of these ideas which go back to 1968 on the foreign policy of the red-green government. Mm-hmm. Well, it certainly has more influence than, I, and, you know, well, I would just say that in the American case that, that, that uh, some of these ideas had currency and that they fell away very quickly. Uh, right. And, and uh, you know, you look at someone like Bill Clinton, uh, he's, uh, he forgot about all that. I mean, except for the fact that he may have smoked some marijuana, that was pretty much it um, right. uh, in the 60s for him. But anyway, this is an absolutely fascinating book, and I congratulate you for writing it. I very much enjoyed talking to you about it and reading it, and I hope that other people go and read it because, again, it, it really does help. I'll just speak as an American. It really did help me try to understand, help me understand uh, West German and now German uh, uh, history and politics in a much better way than I than I had before. Certainly much better than the impression that I got from watching the Bader Meinhof complex, right. which was a good movie. But I, yeah, I didn't. Yeah, no. I, this it is, doesn't really give you the. No, the back. it really doesn't. This is really. It's it's much more. Um, yeah. This this it's it's a complicated story. And, yeah. and, and again, you find yourself cheering for people that you think you shouldn't be cheering for and being sympathetic to people that you never thought you would be sympathetic for. Right. And I, I think that's right. a mark of your subtlety as a storyteller and, and your ability to kind of bring out the, the contradictions that these people faced. I mean, one of the things, just to go on for a second, um, that, I, that, I, that, I, uh, that you point out in the book that I really quite liked is, you know, in, in the political discourse of the United States, when people say, well, that's fascist or this is fascist or he's a fascist, it's yeah. just it's, – it's simply an analogy. Yeah. In, in the case of them, when they were pointing their fingers at people, some of them actually were fascists. Yeah, were, yeah. I mean, uh, were, absolutely. Yeah, that, that really does make things very different, I think, and, and we, have to, we, have to, uh, we have to pay attention to that. So anyway, thanks very much for the book. Let me um, ask you, Hans, to, to close the interview by answering our traditional final question on New Books in History, and that is, what are you working on now? Right. Uh, my, my, I work at um, the European Council on Foreign Relations, which is a European foreign policy think tank based in, in London. And so I am doing quite a lot of work around German foreign policy, which in a sense is a kind of continuation, really, of the, of the themes in, in, in the book. This has become uh, quite a big issue in the last year or so since the Euro crisis. There's been a lot of debate yeah. about, about a shift in, in German foreign policy that's, that, that I think actually goes back to the, to the, to the Schroeder government, to the red-green government, but become particularly apparent in the, last, um, in the last 12 months or so as Germany has responded to the, to the Euro crisis. So it's, in a sense, the sort of the, 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 next, the next chapter, really, the, the, the way 
that um, the, the Merkel government has 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 in the foreign policy of, 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 the, of the Merkel government and, and the extent to which that continues certain developments that had been set in motion by Schroeder. So that's that's one thing uh, I'm working on. I'm also very interested at, in the mo- at the moment. In the, in, in the history of Zionism, actually, and particularly the influence of uh, German intellectual history and German nationalism in particular on, on early political Zionism. So um, I'm, thinking about, I'm thinking about writing something around that theme. Well, I hope you do. And then when you do, we'll have you back on the show. Anyway, Hans, thanks very much for being with us today. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. All right, take care. Bye-bye. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with Hans Kundanani about his book, Utopia or Auschwitz? Germany's 1968 generation and the Holocaust. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope you have a great week. Music